Okay, we just got permission to go a little bit late since we're starting late, so that's great. We'll aim to be out of here um, by 4.10. Okay, I'm going to pray again. Actually, I'll just tell you a little bit about myself, although really I was just going to tell you about my baby girl. She's five months old, and she is so cute. She's home with her daddy right now. And uh, my husband and I met on the night watch in the prayer room four and a half years ago, And um, I was this focused, thought maybe I was going to be single, and then he just appeared in the prayer room one day, and I just thought I was backsliding. I could hardly focus on prayer anymore, and (laughs) thought, what is going on with me? I'm, I'm like losing my first love, and I was so distraught, and writing with tears in my journal every night, lead me not to temptation, God, deliver me from evil, and, um... (laughs) I didn't know at the time that it was, the Lord was just smiling and saying, I sent him, it's all right, it's good. So anyway, we got married in 2002, and and my husband is a firefighter um, right now. He was originally on staff with IHOP. And so anyway, we had our baby girl, our first child, five months ago. And so I love being being part of the prayer room. It's my passion to give myself in prayer and and in that way to give myself to hasten Jesus return. So anyway, let's let's dive in. Let's pray and you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit living inside of us. And and each of us right now, God, we just ask you to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know you more. We ask you, God, to anoint the speaking and the hearing of your word. And I ask you to deposit something of your word that would last within us. God, in the next 40 minutes, I just ask you for, for um, arrows from your heart that would lodge within us and would stay. I ask you for fruit that remains out of this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of this seminar is The Sermon on the Mount, Living with Power on the Heart. And I gave you just a real general overview of the teaching on your notes. And so um, I'd encourage you to take more notes because I'm going to try to move fast since we don't have a lot of time. Now, the word power can be a little bit tricky, wouldn't you agree? Because some people, when they hear power, they think of maybe Alexander the Great or or um, some great military conqueror who just had a lot of power. And other people might think of of some tyrant who used it the wrong way, or you might think of all sorts of negative images of people who had power in your life that lorded it over you or used their power or their authority in hurtful ways. But there is another kind of power that I want to look at today, and it's it's the power of the heart. It's power that is actually, the scripture says, it's way harder to possess this kind of power than to conquer a city. Proverbs 16.32 says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit or who has self-control when, when it feels like 
things are going crazy inside and you're so mad you feel like you could throw something. He who rules his spirit, who calms down and doesn't throw the thing, (laughs) in other words. He who rules his spirit is better than he who captures a city. It's way harder to have power on the inner man than to wield a sword in the natural or to take a gun and blow somebody to bits. I mean, that in one way, you have power in your hand when you have a bullet right at the tip of your fingers. But it's, it takes way more power to forgive somebody who's hurt you badly. It takes way more power to, um, to not speak in your defense when you're being accused or something like that. And so that's the kind of power that I want to touch on today. That's the kind of power that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5 to 7. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, or Matthew um, 5, 6, and 7, is the constitution of God's kingdom. It's the litmus test to measure our spiritual growth and our ministry. And when I say ministry, I'm not referring to a platform ministry. You all have ministries. If you're believers, your ministry might be to a small group or it might be to 100 or 50. It doesn't matter before um, the size of your ministry what matters is your faithfulness in who you're ministering to. So when I say ministry, don't think of, of somebody who's just hired to work in a church. Think of what you're called to do. What has God called you to do and your spiritual influence on other people? So we tend to measure ourselves by the outward. We tend to measure our, ourselves, our own hearts and our ministry by the size of the impact that we're making, by our popularity, a lot by size though. Um, we humans tend to just think the numbers mean quality, and quantity doesn't equal quality. But um, but we tend to to measure the amount of spiritual power that we're walking in by the outward, by the size of our ministry or impact or by our popularity. And and because of that, many Christians today are discouraged because they're measuring themselves by those outward things, by by the measure of their talents even. And and we've got to uh, evaluate ourselves or we've got to embrace God's standards of evaluating success and God's standard of evaluating, evaluating power. So in, in these chapters in Matthew, Jesus is giving us the themes that we're, we're most to give our lives to, more than in getting the numbers to follow us and more than in in making sure that we're super talented in these three areas. These are the things where we want to give our lives to more than anything else. So there's a, there's a, um, in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, I would raise my hand if someone asked me this, used to think of this, these chapters, this part of the Bible as a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts. Isn't that true? That mostly when I would hear about the Beatitudes, I would think, oh, do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. And I kind of had the mindset that Jesus is just a big grump. And he's just saying, you know, get with it, guys. You're just doing it all wrong and just kind of being grumpy and and a mean, grumpy teacher. (laughs) But he's not being a mean, grumpy teacher. He's being a very tender and loving shepherd saying, guys, let me give you a few keys for for your heart to walk in freedom and to walk in power. And if you follow these things, you will have freedom and power on your inner man. I um, I remember one day years ago being stunned by Math, um, Psalm 45, verse 7, 
it says that, speaking of Jesus, it says, you love righteousness, you hate wickedness. Therefore, you have more joy than anybody else on the earth. And you would think that it said, you love righteousness, you hate wickedness, therefore you're the grumpiest man on earth because nobody is righteous, not even one, and they just can't get with it. But it doesn't say that. It says, Jesus loves righteousness, therefore he has more joy than anybody else. And and he's so Jesus, in these chapters, he's giving us insights on how to live with a free heart. He's, he's telling us, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, guys, I know a way that your heart can live in joy and can live in freedom. So I'm going to give um, some basic principles and overview of, of the chapters, and then we'll go, we'll narrow in a little bit more on sections of the chapter, but there's just not time to go in detail on all of it. And I, it's not like I even have revelation of all of it. So we're just going to go a little bit more broad scale. The foundational call in the Sermon on the Mount is to live out the eight Beatitudes as we pursue 100-fold obedience. The Beatitudes are like eight beautiful flowers in the garden of our heart that God wants to fully blossom. They define love, godliness, and spiritual maturity that please God. They describe the lifestyle that's the core reality of God's kingdom. Now, I'm a little bit of a gardener. I haven't gardened for years or anything, and I don't have a huge garden. But I I have learned this, that weeds grow. And I know that sounds really obvious, but I used to think that the better your soil is, the more the weeds won't grow. So that if I can just make my soil really good and put compost in it, then the nasty weeds will just stay out. But I found that actually the opposite is true. The better soil that you have, the more the weeds love to hang out there and love to think, this is my day to rain. And so I love the garden illustrations that Jesus gives in the scripture because they're so real and practical. And so I I like thinking of the Sermon on the Mount is in terms of a garden, the garden of our heart. The scripture speaks of our hearts and our lives being like vineyards of the Lord. So think of the Beatitudes as, as the fruit, the plants, the beautiful flowers that God wants to grow in our hearts. And then later in chapter 5, Jesus introduces six things that are like toxins or really nasty weeds that don't just picture this little kind of weed that you just pull out and drop over the side of the fence. Picture something that if you don't pull it out, it's going to take over the entire garden because that's really what they do. Or think of it as a cancer. So Jesus starts out in in chapter 5 with eight Beatitudes, and then he goes into six things in the rest of chapter 5 that are like toxins, poisons, that he says, if you don't get rid of this in your heart, it will take over. And then in chapter 6, he talks about pursuing five positive nutrients, things that you put into the soil, so to speak, to make your garden grow. So I'm just going to jump ahead. That was a brief overview. But but when we live according to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I have to say this at the, at the front end, we don't always feel powerful. There's a big difference between feeling powerful and being powerful. But it's a question of what is going to endure. We tend to seek immediate gratification. We want to feel powerful in the moment, right? So we exert our wills. We exert our 
uh, we stick our chest out and we make sure that people know we've got the goods or this or that so we can feel powerful. But Jesus isn't giving us the way to feel powerful necessarily, though we do feel powerful sometimes. He's giving us the way to be powerful, not just in the next five minutes, not just in the next five years of your life, but to live with divine power on your heart for all of eternity. It's a question of what will endure. God doesn't define power as we do because we we are looking in the short term and he sees the end from the beginning. So actually, the things that Jesus reveals to us in these chapters are very, very weak according to the way the world evaluates. And when we embrace them, we're going to feel a little bit weak. I mean, you feel a little bit weak when when somebody is slandering you and you don't slander them back. You've taken the hit. You know, it's weak according to the to the world and to the way we evaluate. But it takes, again, it takes way more power to not slander somebody back than it does to just open your mouth and give it to them. Jesus tells us what sort of power and wisdom will endure. Look at Matthew 7. Verses 24 to 27. Jesus says, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine, and he's he's just finishing up his Sermon on the Mount. And so he's saying, Everyone who hears what I just said, and, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and its fall was very great. So Jesus is promising us, if you do these things, you are like a wise man who is building your life on foundation that's going to endure through the storms of life through the storms that are coming even in the end of the age, the final generation is going to endure more storms and hardship and more glory too um, because of the things that are coming before the, before his return. And then there's the storm of the, of the when he comes again, he's going to evaluate all of our works. It says in scripture that we're going to stand before him, before the all-consuming fire, and whatever our lives, whatever we stand with, whatever we possess in ourselves that wasn't built on him and his kingdom is just going to burn up like that, just like nothing. And all the energy that we've spent making our ministry bigger or hoping to be popular or trying to get men's approval or, or trying to get more money or this or that, if it wasn't based on his will, it's gone like that when we stand before him. It has absolutely no bearing on the billions and billions and billions of the of the years that really is the bulk of our lifetime. We think of our lifetime as mostly being 70 years. I tell you, our 70 years is like a vapor. It's gone in a moment. And the bulk of our lifetime is going to be an eternity. Really. Because you're an eternal soul. You're never going to die. I mean, you might die, but you're going to be resurrected to heaven or hell. So you're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you think about that, 70 years is nothing. And so Jesus is saying, let me tell you what kind of lifestyle is going to endure. What kind of lifestyle is going to stand before the storm of my coming? 
because so much of it is just going to, when the winds come and when he comes, it's just going to blow away and be nothing. So much of what we give our lives to. And he's saying there is something, though, that will endure. If you cultivate these things in your life, when I come and you stand before me, Paul says it this way, it will be like gold in your heart that won't burn away. When you stand before the all-consuming fire, you will have a treasure chest of glory and beauty, and you will shine in the ages to come, and you will know more pleasure than you have than you know what to do with in the ages to come if you give your lives to this. <clears throat> so Jesus declared it wise to emphasize these things and to obey them, and, and foolish, utterly foolish to neglect them. Although in the moment, again, it seems more foolish to follow it. The short term, you look more, a little bit more like a fool if you follow this. But when you consider the billions of years to come, the short term's nothing, right? It's like somebody said, well, who cares if you get your head cut off? You're going to get it back. It's that kind of thing that really, the, the short term, it's nothing. If your head gets cut off for living the gospel, don't worry, you're going to get it back. And it's going to be a lot better of a head. It's going to work a lot better. <clears throat> there's a there's a question that rises in our hearts when we look actually let's let's look at Matthew 5 um what verse is it it's the end of the chapter Matthew 5:48 this is a this is a clincher of a verse it didn't make sense to me for so many years Jesus says therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect what does that mean? How can we be perfect as God is perfect? And I believe what he's saying is, is you are to walk with 100, you are to pursue 100% obedience in every area that God reveals to your heart that you're, you're not living yielded to him or you're not seeking to follow him in every little area of rebellion that he exposes in your heart. You are to declare war on that sin and pursue 100% obedience. That God's not just interested in getting a bunch of good little people who do a few good little things and then do whatever they want on the side. He's saying, no, I want people to be in relationship to me. And if you think about being married to somebody, you would not want to be married to somebody that just goes through the motions and gives you a little bit of kindness here and there, but on the side, they really can't stand to be with you, and they really do whatever they want. But when they're in your presence, they'll smile and do the nice thing. You would not want to be married to somebody like that. And Jesus is saying, I do not want to be married to people like that. I am raising a pure and spotless bride who seek to love me with their whole heart. And as soon as I expose an area where where things aren't right, between us they turn on that sin and right away they pursue 100 percent obedience and so if if we have that understanding of what the call is the call to be fully yielded to god in love then the sermon on the mount makes a little bit more sense and we'll, we'll get to that point more there's a false teaching a common false teaching out that has twisted the understanding of the grace of God to be um, to reduce it to be, well, grace covers your sins, so don't worry what you do today. 
But that's it's such a lie because the true grace of God, the scripture says, empowers us to live godly. It's not just about having our sins forgiven once. It's about equipping us to become a worthy wife for the lamb. And guys, I know that you're guys. And so talking about wife of the lamb, but guys are just as much the bride of the lamb as women are the sons of God. It's it's not talking about a literal natural relationship it's talking about a place of privilege and intimacy that god wants with us and so um we're called to be that close with the heart of god with the maker of the universe and he is not interested in a bunch of souls that he's going to stack on the shelves of heaven he's interested in people that intimately know his heart so grace is is about empowering our hearts to live like that not just about um, getting our sins forgiven once and for all. It's not an insurance policy for people who want to continue in their sin. <clears throat> okay, let's um, let's jump into Matthew five. True spiritual reality is defined by eight beatitudes. They describe what pleases God and they describe what God, why do, why does it please God? Because it's how his own heart is. It's how his own heart moves. Being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit is to acknowledge that we're in great need. Now, if, if all that God is after is just a few good outward works, well, then everybody's going to heaven and nobody really has to be poor in spirit because all you got to do is do a few good works, go to church, this and that, and you're you're fine. But that's not what God's after. We Like we just said, God's after hearts that intimately and deeply know him and and know him not only in their minds, but there's real relationship and, and people that are becoming like him. And so when we look at that goal of be perfect as your father in heaven is, is perfect, then we stand back and go, I can't do that on my own. And when's the last time that you have been perfect like God, that you have, that you have the ability to forgive somebody that just killed your sister or, or that you have, you have what it takes to never, ever, ever speak a bad word against somebody again in your entire life. And when you think of those kinds of standards, we just go, I can't do that. And there's something in us that rather than turning off and saying, well, I can't do that, so forget you, God. I'll just go be bad because I can't be good. <laughs> rather than that, there's supposed to be a, a sobriety and a mourning inside of us that goes, God, I need you because you've called me to be your suitable partner. You've called me to be your your intimate friend for all of eternity. And I'm not like you. I have I have yucky motives in my heart every day. And I want to slander people when they upset me and and I want to gossip on them. And I want to I want to do all sorts of selfish things. So how can it be that you want to marry me? How can it be that you want to live forever with me and have deep, intimate friendship with me? And there's something in us that goes, I need you. I need you to change my heart. And Jesus goes, oh, that's it. That's what I came for. 
I came for the person who's sick and who knows that they're sick. Because really we're all sick. But if we're like the Pharisees, we're sick and we just don't know it. But if we're like the sinner, we're sick and we know it. And we say, God, I've got, I've got so much stuff that is wrong in my heart and I need you. And he says, theirs is the kingdom. The person that says that, I'm going to share my heart with them. And they will possess the kingdom. Mourning for breakthrough. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, it's not enough to just have a one-time experience where we say, oh, God, I need you. There's got to be an ongoing in our lifetime mourning, a spirit of grieving when we're, when we're out of line with his heart and when things are out of line with his heart. And Jesus says the person that, that lives in that mourning, now mind you, it doesn't mean you live depressed and with a gloomy face all the time. Because remember, Jesus loves righteousness, but he has more joy than anybody on the planet. And so... So the the morning isn't talking about having a gloomy face all the time. The morning is is talking about a posture of heart where we're deeply grieved when when something is out of line in us. It's like David when the prophet came to him and said said, "Look, you've done wrong. You've killed somebody to get his wife, and that's wrong." And David realized it. Out of he realized the the conviction came on him and he said, "Oh, I'm so sorry, God." And that's the kind of thing the morning that we're talking about. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness does not equal weakness. A lot of times we think of meek as being this quiet little person, maybe. A meek person as being really quiet, soft-spoken, not strong. But actually, meekness is, is the opposite. It's a person who's very strong, who has learned to control himself. It's, it's the analogy I've heard for years, which I love, is a horse that's been bridled. And, and so it's a picture of great strength that has been learned to. We bridle our strength and use it to serve people. So someone who's meek, it, it might be, you might be meek and soft-spoken, but you might be very outspoken, but you've learned to bridle your tongue and use the power of your words to serve people instead of to hurt them. Or to use whatever strengths you have to serve instead of to to lord it over people. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. They will be filled. Again, it's um, similar, I think, to mourning. For mourning is a sustained faithfulness to seek God with our whole hearts. Instead of being burned out by disappointments or offended with people and with God... There's, there's a steadiness in us where at the core of who we are, we're hungering for righteousness. There's a hunger, there's a longing that, that doesn't go away just because somebody made us a little mad. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Having a tender spirit in how we treat others, especially those who attack or resist us or disappoint us. Blessed are the pure in heart. Purity in, in our thoughts and motives. I'm going to skip down, just because you have some notes, I'm going to skip um, down to overcoming hindrances, resisting the toxin of sin.
I'm going to read in chapter 5. I think I'll mostly just focus on one or two of these, just for time's sake. Verse 21. Actually, I'm going to jump up to verse 20 because it's such a powerful verse. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, on first glance, you might think, wow, so what Jesus is wanting is just a perfect track record because the Pharisees, they seemed like they had a perfect track record, right? And Jesus is saying, no, I'm looking for something that runs deeper than a perfect track record because having a perfect track record, nobody's perfect. Again, remember the the Pharisee was sick. He just didn't know it or he didn't admit it. We're all sick. We all have wrong track records. So the issue isn't can we can we just never, ever, ever sin again because we're going to sin again. It's the posture of our hearts. And and so he's saying, unless you have a righteousness that runs deeper than the outward works, you have no part in my kingdom. I'm looking for the heart. I'm looking for the heart that is bound to me, for the heart that loves me, not just outward works. And so unless you have a righteousness that runs deeper than outward works, you will not enter the kingdom. And so then he goes on to explain a little bit more of the of the challenges that we face in our hearts when that's the standard. He says, well, you've heard it. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. But he but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be held guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or you fool, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court and and shall say, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, when you um, look at that, isn't there something in you that goes, Jesus, what are you talking about? Are you saying that to commit murder is the same thing as to look at somebody and be angry? And Jesus says, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> He's saying there, the seed that that leads to murder is anger. And you've all got it. You all have the seed of murder in you. So I'm not trying to disillusion you. Don't go home and think, ah, I'm about to murder somebody. I'm saying you all have in you what it takes to, if you would nurture that seed, you all have the capacity to murder. Don't let that give you boldness to go there. Let that give you sobriety to realize that within every human heart, we have the the little seed of cancer that if we don't pull it out, it will lead to worse and worse and worse things. So Jesus talks about it starts with anger in the heart, and then it leads to speaking out anger, angry words. And, and angry words, if we act on them, lead to angry actions. And that leads to, if you would keep cultivating that anger in your heart, you would eventually murder. It's a sobering reality. But And it sounds maybe a little lofty, but think of it this way. Have you ever been so angry at somebody? Now, you wouldn't dare think of going to murder them, but you kind of just wish that they wouldn't be there. You just kind of wish they weren't there. Well, that's the spirit of murder, wishing they did not exist, right? Why I'm so angry at you, I just wish you weren't here. I just wish you wouldn't exist 
Doesn't that sound like murder to you? The spirit of it. Obviously, you don't, you might not have the boldness to go fulfill the act. But in your heart, you're wishing the person doesn't exist. And Jesus is saying, that's murder. Because I'm after the heart. I'm not just looking at outward things. That has been, this, this part, anger, the spirit of murder has, I've been focusing on this more in the, in the past six months. And I am shocked at how many times there's anger in my heart. And I was raised to never be angry. Um, I, my parents, my grandparents were Amish. I was raised in Pennsylvania and it was not okay to be angry. And it was not okay if you are angry to admit it. If you're angry, you just don't talk about it. You just close down. But what I found is over years and years and years, just because I didn't ever yell at somebody didn't mean I wasn't angry. I had so much anger built up in my heart. And one time my husband and I were in a conversation and I was in a process through a a series of processes that the Lord was leading me into. I was, he was just exposing a lot of stuff in my inner man and I had gotten sick and, and just God had a way of kind of bringing me to nothing and making me realize I've got a lot of issues on the inside. He has a good way of doing that to us, doesn't he? So, um, I was in this process of realizing I've got anger inside and, and it would take me weeks to realize that I was angry. Now, some of you might have a very different upbringing and personality, and you know the second you're angry. But for me, I just had stuffed it and stuffed it and stuffed it. And I thought I was the least angry person I knew. I mean, I thought it took me it took so much to get me angry. Um, but one night, my husband and I were having a conversation, and I thought I had never been angry at him. And I was so angry. I tell you, I was getting red in the face, and I wanted to throw something across the room. And and that might not sound like a big deal to you, but to me it was huge because I was this calm, easygoing person that just thought I had no anger. And I had asked the Lord to begin exposing anger. And and I told my husband, I'm feeling really angry right now. And, and he said, because we were talking about something that happened weeks ago. You know, I did the typical wife thing where I stuffed it and didn't talk about it for weeks and then said, I'm angry about this. And and he said, why am I just now hearing about it? And I said, I'm just now realizing that I have anger. So I share that to say, just because you don't act out in tantrums or have moments of rage doesn't mean that you don't have anger. And um, so I would encourage you to go before the Lord and, and ask him, expose that seed of anger, expose that seed of murder in my heart. Um and I guarantee you, he will allow circumstances to happen in your life that just expose it really fast. And all of a sudden, um, you'll see what's inside. But the thing that, and I'll share another example with you, because a few a few bullet points down on your note, notes, it talks about, um, what's the wording? Retaliation. In, in Matthew 4. 542 to 47 a spirit of retaliation and and again i just thought i was this peace loving person calm and easygoing and and i was asking the lord to expose some of these cancers in my life because they are cancers that will eat you and eat you until until you are dying on the inside if you don't pull these weeds out of your garden everybody's got the weeds so don't don't feel terrible if you have a weed inside. The difference between 
weeds and wickedness is weeds grow in everybody. Wickedness is when weeds are left untended. So just because weeds grow in my garden at home doesn't mean I'm a bad gardener. What, what makes me a bad gardener is if I don't pull the weeds out, right? So what I began doing is asking God, show me where these weeds are that are taking over my inner man and I don't even realize it. So anyway, one day, um, I just had heard from somebody that someone said something bad about me and I was really hurt and I was really upset about it and, and I, I slandered back, basically. I gossiped and slandered back, not to the person's face, but I heard someone said this about me, and I said, I said, well, I said something bad about them. Now, we do that kind of thing all the time. I didn't even realize what was going on. And I, I felt justified because I was exposing the person who exposed me. I was exposing him to leadership. I was saying, we've got this slander in the midst, not realizing I was slandering them back, right? It sounds crazy, doesn't it? But I don't even know if I'm making sense. Am I making sense? Okay. Um, Because I'm trying not to give details. (laughs) So anyway, so I was at home that night just feeling yucky inside and thinking, why do I feel yucky? I did the right thing. I I, um, kind of made sure that justice was done, you know, because I care about justice. (laughs) And and, um, I just felt, I felt the, the tender, rebuke of God in my spirit saying you slandered you took justice into your own hands now the love of justice is a godly thing it's right to to long for things to be made right but to take it into your own hands and to use your words to try to mete out justice when you're harming somebody in the process is not godly and so he was saying you couldn't just keep your mouth shut and trust me to bring justice you had to defend yourself and slander somebody in the process. And that really, um, that really, at first, I felt so humiliated by it all. And I was just thinking, I felt so awful about it. And, and I was thinking how the people that I talked to probably realized what was going on. And then the Lord led my heart again, and he just said, I have been so kind to you to allow this to happen Because if this, if you hadn't been slandered, you wouldn't have known that you had the seed of slander in your own heart. Right? And so I began seeing, now I'm trying to see everything hard that comes in my life as an opportunity for my heart to grow. I tell you, it transforms life. It it transforms the circumstances of your life. If you see when you get slandered as an opportunity for your heart to get free of slander, If you see when you get mistreated, it's an opportunity for your heart to be free of anger, to get freed up, right? Because when you get mistreated, that that reaction rises up in you. You want to harm back or you want to gossip or you want to make it right. And that response of anger in your heart, God's saying, ah, there it is. There it is. And if you want to get free of it, you have the opportunity. And so... Now, it's what the Bible says. Consider it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. Because when the trials happen to you, it's an opportunity for your heart to grow. And so seeing mistreatment, seeing hard things in life as opportunities for your heart to grow, it will transform your life. In chapter 6, um, Jesus describes four or five, depending how you look at it, 
activities in our devotional life that release grace to our hearts. He talks about serving and giving, blessing our enemies. He talks about praying and fasting. But he says six times in there, he mentions, no, seven times, he mentions the um, issue of reward or he says you will have reward or your father in heaven will repay you if you do these things in secret. He's talking about laboring and pouring yourself out in secret that you're not trying to get noticed by man, but he says, know this, you will be rewarded by God. You will be rewarded by God. Every cup of cold water that you give is noticed by God. It will never be forgotten, and you will have reward forever and ever. Again, you might not be noticed for your kindness and your servanthood in these 70 years of life, but for billions and billions of years, you will be rewarded, and you will have inheritance that will not fade and will not be destroyed. That's a good deal. It really is. I give one small act of kindness. I change diapers, even the big blowout poops that are a big mess. And I change them day after day to a little girl who doesn't know how to thank me, except for her smile, which is really winning and a big thank you enough. But but that kind of thing that I've got to realize that my Father in Heaven looks at that, and he says, I see that, and I will never forget it. Not ever. I might not ever be praised by man for all the diapers that I've changed, but God sees it, and he's going to reward it someday forever and ever. And so every time that you bless your enemy when you're cursed, when you're slandered, and you decide to pray for them instead of harming them back, God is taking note of that, and he says, I see that, and your inheritance will be forever and ever. In fact, that one time that I slandered back, you know what I felt the Lord say to me? I felt him say, well, you got your reward in full. You got your reward in full. You slandered, you were slandered back. Are you happy now? You got what you wanted. You got the justice. Your reward is given in full. But but it was as though he was saying, I would have given you reward that would have lasted forever if you would have kept your mouth shut. There would have been something that worked in your heart that shined in eternity. And you would have possessed a glory that radiated and never faded because I would have remembered that you blessed instead of cursed. But you slandered in return. You've got your reward in full. Aren't you happy? The end of your pleasure. And now you have to live with the sickening feeling that you slandered, right? Not a great reward. So he talks about in chapter 6, if you do do these things before your father who sees in secret, you will you will be rewarded by your father. It's a much better deal than trying to get your own reward. Okay, I think I'm running out of time. So, um, let me say this yet. The things that are mentioned, fasting, serving, they're, they're not about earning God's favor. They're about living with a free heart in God. So when we fast and when we pray, it's not about getting God to like us. It's about freeing our heart to live in all that he's given us. Um, it's about it's about living in that intimate relationship that he has called us to. And so that's one reason he says you don't need to do it before people because I see it. And it's about us, right? It's not about the crowds and it's not about people praising you. It's about us growing 
in intimate partnership and me rewarding you forever and ever for the, the things that I've seen over the years and never forgotten. Well, let's pray. And then I'll, I'll be up here just for a few minutes. Actually, I think we need to move out, so I'll probably just stand outside the door if anyone has any questions afterwards. Oh, God, I, I just ask you to continue to unfold these truths in our hearts. God, I feel like... Um, like it's almost an injustice to to just touch on these things for 40 minutes and there's such deep wells of truth and and um living freedom that you've called us to that that we want to enter into God such deep wells of truth that you've given us and I just ask you by your holy spirit to to teach us of these things God, I ask you again to to give something, to deposit something that remains in every heart here today. I ask you, Holy Spirit, our teacher, to unfold these things to our hearts, to quicken our understanding in ways that no human voice could do. And I ask you, God, to, to make us a people like you. I ask you for you to come with conviction upon our hearts even now of areas that we are clinging to darkness, where there's darkness in our hearts and we're okay with it, or where, where there's compromise or darkness or anger in our hearts and and we're living with it. And, and God, I ask you to shine your light in our hearts and to give us that passion for purity, to give us that passion for intimacy with you where we're not okay with with um, darkness that we're harboring in our hearts. And so I ask you for that zeal, for that righteousness, for that joy that, that you have in your heart, that, we, that it would be in us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.